Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the word of the Lord. Last fall, Dr. Marcus Borg published a new book called The Evolution of the Word. Dr. Marcus Borg is an esteemed Lutheran scholar in our own country, has published numerous books, and this book simply puts the Bible into chronological order as Dr. Marcus Borg understands that chronological order. As you know, of course, it isn't in chronological order as we have it. That is the order in which it was written. So he begins this book with Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Scholars are pretty much agreed that is the oldest material we have in the Christian scriptures. But today we're focused on 1 Peter, and Dr. Borg puts it number 23 out of the 27 writings in the New Testament. I took from the shelf this week a book given to me by the bishop who ordained me both deacon and elder, uh, Bishop Paul Martin. Uh, when he was retiring, uh, he had come to mean so much to Gail and me that I invited him and Mrs. Martin to have dinner with us shortly before his retirement, even asked his secretary what his favorite restaurant was there in Houston, and we took them out to dinner, and he gave me a present. And this present was, at that time, the very latest and best scholarship on how the various writings in the New Testament came to be. Three great German scholars called Fena, Baim, Kummel. And in their description of this writing, 1 Peter, they agreed with what Marcus Borg was saying 50 years later, and that is, it was written somewhere probably between 90 and 95 of that first century, perhaps written from Rome back to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The churches listed there in the very beginning verses probably are accurate. But rather than being the writing of Peter, who was put to death, we believe, in the persecutions of the Caesar Nero in the mid-60s, this is the writing of a disciple some 30 years after the death of both Peter and Paul. Our mothers and fathers of the faith decided this is holy writ, and you and I certainly take it to be so. Let's see what it has to say. Our lection for today begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This author appropriately focuses attention again on God. There are many Christians in our community who talk about Jesus, 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 and we sometimes imagine they have forgotten about God. It was God who was at work in Jesus. Jesus was really dead and really buried, and his hope was strictly based in God in what God would do, in fact, what God has now done. Last Sunday, I was exhausted when we got through with all the Easter services. Even so, by Sunday night, I thought, 
I'm going to watch that last installment of the Bible on the History Channel. I really watched all ten hours of that because I thought some of you would be asking me if I'd seen it and what I thought about it. So five Sunday nights I watched that two-hour program. I was interested in seeing how this husband-wife team would condense 66 books into 10 hours of television and that included a lot of commercial time as well. It was interesting to me that they gave a whole hour to Abraham and Sarah and didn't even mention Jacob and Esau and the 12 sons of Jacob. Next thing we knew they were in slavery in Egypt and so Moses got an hour and King David got an hour. It was interesting the emphasis they gave to some persons in the Bible and not nearly so much to others. But there was one thing I liked very much about the whole series, and that was the way they picked up on the image of God as ruach, as wind, breath, spirit. Abraham and Sarah were an old couple they now believe far too old to have a baby who had tried all their adult lifetimes to have a baby and without success and suddenly the wind started blowing and then you saw a solitary figure up on a hill and then a voice saying how would you like to have a son who would be the beginning of a whole new nation they believed enough to pack up their tent, roll up their beds, and move 400 miles westward. And then after settling in Haran for a while, God told them to go south, and they went another 400 miles, still no baby. And then one day the wind began to blow. The Ruach moved. And suddenly you saw three figures off in the distance and these three made their way to the tent of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham said, quickly, fill the f kill the fatted calf, cook quickly, make as much bread as we possibly can. And meat and bread and hospitality were shown. And one of these three said, by this time next year, Sarah, you will bear a son. We skip Jacob, Esau, the 12 sons. We're 400 years later, slavery in Egypt. Moses sees one of his own under terrible attack one day by an Egyptian. He strikes out in anger, kills the Egyptian, runs to the Sinai Desert. And then one day the wind starts to blow, really blow out on the desert of Sinai. Moses is frantically trying to drive the stakes of his tent deeper and deeper to hold it steady against the wind. He goes inside and suddenly a light, a light shining through the wall of his tent. He pulls back the flap and there's a burning bush. This motif of the wind. When Jesus has been baptized and goes out into the desert where he's tempted He's exhausted, hungry, thirsty, collapses onto the sand, and the wind blows. The wind blows, and the snake comes. Will Jesus succumb to a talking snake, as it were, or will he not? Will he make the same mistake as first humans, 
or will he get it right and the wind blows? Last Sunday night, after the resurrection, the disciples, almost two months later, are sitting around the table wondering, what happens next? What do we do next? And all of a sudden, if you've been watching all ten hours, you notice that through the window comes the wind. And suddenly, papers are rattling. Suddenly, curtains are moving. The wind goes stronger and stronger. And suddenly, all these disciples are speaking in foreign languages, not a glossolalia, not an ecstatic utterance. They're speaking known languages, but different languages to all those who lived in Jerusalem who had come there from so many different places. This begins at the right place, you see, this author. Blessed be the God, the Ruach, that moves among his creatures, his children, sons and daughters. That's where we begin. Second, it says, by his great mercy. This seems to be so important in this sentence that I looked it up in my big dictionary that Gail got me many years ago. This huge, unabridged Merriam-Webster dictionary. And I looked up the word mercy. You know what it says? Number one definition. Withholding punishment for deeds done wrong. Or, or extending kindness more than common sense would have deemed appropriate. Withholding punishment or extending kindness more than anyone could have imagined as being fair. Mercy. Recently I was reading an article about Terrell McCarney. He's a 32-year-old playwright whose most recent play is being staged now. Dr. Ronald Sleeth taught me back in seminary to pay close attention to contemporary playwrights. You can learn much by reading from contemporary playwrights. We were reading very different ones back in the 60s, but I continue to read good plays. This one is called Head of Passes. Head of Passes. Do you know what that refers to? Well, if you've lived down on the Gulf Coast, you might know. The Mississippi River flows down right to the Gulf of Mexico, and when it gets there, it forks into three branches. And these three branches of the Mississippi, right at the Mississippi Delta, are called by the locals the Head of Passes. Water moving down one or the other is determined as to where it will enter the Gulf of Mexico. There's a, a decision point, if you will. The water goes right, it goes left, or it goes straight ahead. It forms the Mississippi Delta. Now, Terrell McCarney didn't grow up in the Mississippi Delta. He grew up in Miami, Florida, in a community called Liberty City. It's a horrible neighborhood with lots of drugs, gang activity. His father abandoned him and his mother. His mother was a drug addict herself. 
she contracted AIDS either from a promiscuous sex life or from bet dirty needles with her habit. She died when Terrell was 23. But somehow he managed to walk through that minefield of the neighborhood in Miami, pointing out again how significant educators can be in a child's life, how significant Sunday school teachers, a church can be in a child's life. He made it through high school, was graduated with honors, received scholarship to DePaul University to study acting, received scholarship to go to Yale Divinity, uh, not Divinity School, Yale uh, University for master's degree in playwriting. He's one of the most celebrated young African-American playwrights in America today. Head of Passes is a modern look at the book of Job, a black family living in the Mississippi Delta, a single mother who's had almost every horrible thing thrown at her one can imagine, until finally her own son, maybe Terrell, is saying to his mother, it's sometimes you just have to give up. You just feel like the Lord has turned against you. And she says, oh, no. Oh, no. That's the time you just dig deeper in faith. You dig deeper in faith because of God's great mercy extended to all his children. This is the God of mercy. Okay, number three. The only time the Greek word that can be translated born again appears in the Christian scriptures is this verse right here. But because that carries so much baggage with various Christian groups, this born again, it says to you and me, a new birth. Okay, these translators chose a new birth. By his great mercy, a new birth has come to us, a hope because he did raise Jesus from the dead. Dr. John Buchanan recently wrote in Christian Century magazine that all those years he was pastoring Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, by the time he and his staff had pushed through the Lenten season, from Ash Wednesday, those 40 days and nights culminating finally in Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and all the Easter services they could possibly do there on that magnificent mile in Chicago. He was exhausted, and he said, I always took off the next Sunday, sometimes 10 days, even two weeks of my vacation immediately after Easter. But now that I'm retired... I feel like I didn't do the right thing by my congregation. Because as I reflect on it, the people who show up the Sunday after Easter are the best you got. They're the best you've got. And they've come back the Sunday after Easter to ask, so what? So what? What? What does all this really mean? What does this really have to do with tomorrow, today? Has anything really changed? 
And then he reflected on the lection appropriate for today if I were doing the gospel. Reverend Marianne Emmons read that to you. And he chose these words from Jesus. As the Father has sent me, so I send you right back into that world. Right back into that Roman world where Jews get bashed, overtaxed, often crucified, to you, where this crazy new head of the North Korean government is rattling sabers that could send thousands, if not millions of people to war, into this insane world where a suicide bomber kills a young 25-year-old woman diplomat in Afghanistan, one of our own, into this crazy world where drive-by shootings occur again and again in all the major cities of America. The one who sent me now says, I send you back into that world. But you're supposed to be different now. Different. After the resurrection of our Lord, you are empowered more than ever to be emissaries of peace and love, kindness, and mercy. Refusing to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not just doing what's fair and right, but going a step beyond, taking the next step, going the next mile, putting yourself out for the well-being of another. You're supposed to be newly born, that death will never have the last word, that there is always reality of life. Life will continue. Life will go on. Life has meaning. Life has purpose. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. He is with us. And then he gets to this part. You have an inheritance. And here one of the scholars I read this week said, this author really sounds more like a disciple of Paul than of Peter. This really sounds like someone who knows very well the writings of Paul as many as are led by the, the Spirit of God, they are the children of God, Paul wrote to the Roman church. As many as are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, and if heirs, then heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. If it be that we suffer with them, then we shall also be glorified with him. And one scholar that I read this week said, what he's describing here is a heavenly safe deposit box that Jesus had talked about storing up treasures in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal where these treasures do not rust or corrupt in any way rather than storing up treasures here on earth where thieves can break in and steal and rust and dust can corrupt that you have a heavenly safe deposit box that in fact God having raised Jesus has everything to do with your being a part of the eternity of God as his gift 
one of the great British preachers, grew up during World War II. He was just a little boy when it began. Now, for those of you in the choir, this is going to take some stretch of your imagination. This was a world that had no television and a world with no cell phones, okay? No television and no cell phones. And this little boy was six years old when his father was drafted into that big war by the British. And his mother had to go to work, as many women did, to try to keep the country going. She had a six-year-old little boy and nobody to look after him. And so she told him, they lived in a very small town, if you get frightened, you dial zero on the phone. No 9-11 in those days, but zero was the operator. And there was an operator in these small towns connecting wires so that one person could talk to another. And much of the day, with the men away at war and the women at work, not many phone calls being made. One day, he said, he was bored to death, six-year-old boy in a house all by himself. He had a radio. Much of the broadcasting was about what was going on in the war. He had a canary, and suddenly this little bird wouldn't sing. He picked up the phone and dialed zero. And when the operator answered, she said, may I help you? And he said, my bird won't sing. What kind of bird do you have? He said, I have a canary. She said, my, my, I know a lot about canaries. Let me tell you what to try. And very patiently, she told him. And he thanked her, and he hung up the phone. And by late afternoon, he said, his little bird was singing again. So the next morning, when he felt lonely, he dialed zero. And when she answered, she knew where the call was coming from. She said, how's the canary? He said, he's singing. He's singing. She said, oh, good. I thought probably he would. And how are you today? I'm fine, he said. Well, I'm glad. And if you get lonely or afraid, you call me. He said he would. Surely enough, even when his bird was singing fine, he called Zero. And she would talk to him and then say, Oops, I've got a call coming. Let's talk again later. And he would hang up. But one day, his canary died. And he dialed Zero and he found it dead in the cage. The woman answered, and he said, he died. Who, she asked, my bird, my canary died. And she talked to him as gently as she could, and then she said, just remember this, there's another world in which to sing. When he got frightened or lonely, he would call and talk to her, and she listened. And then he went away to school. First time he came home on holiday, he dialed zero, and a different voice answered. And when he asked for the other, this voice said, she died. 
but she told me you might call and that if you did for her to ask how you're doing he said I'm fine and she said oh and she said to tell you there's another world in which to sing 